Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation. I'm Robin. I'm Heidi. And in this Halloween-inspired installment of Starcourt Cinema, we're going back to school with 1998's The Faculty. In case you need a refresher, sci-fi horror film The Faculty hit theaters Christmas Day of 1998. It's directed by Robert Rodriguez with a screenplay by Kevin Williamson and boasts a 90s star-studded cast, including Elijah Wood, Josh Hartnett, Robert Patrick, Clay Duvall, Usher, B.B. Newworth, Salma Hayek, and Jon Stewart, among even a few others besides. It's a backdoor alien invasion flick in which parasites slowly infect and invade Harrington High School in a small Ohio (laughs) town. There is plenty of classic science fiction homage peppered throughout the film as an unlikely group of students, Casey, Zeke, Stokely, Stan, Delilah, and Mary Beth team up in in an attempt to thwart the invaders. Hmm, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? But more on that in a minute. The Faculty was not a great success. It debuted in number five in the U.S. It's gross coming in below commercial expectations. Currently on Rotten Tomatoes, it holds a score of 56% on the tomato meter and a 57% audience score. However, it has developed a bit of a cult following over the last decade or so. It's not the most obvious choice for a Halloween-themed episode, but this was the one we really wanted to do. Why? Well... Let's find out, and let's get into our personal history with the property. Also, be aware, like all of our other episodes, spoilers abound henceforth. You have been warned. So Heidi, what is your history with the faculty? First of all, I was today years old when I found out about the Rotten Tomatoes score, and that is deeply shocking and upsetting to me. And I'm going to have to log on and uh, post a review or do something for the cause, because... Yeah, that doesn't make sense. But anyway, well, it it was a surprise. Yeah. I was I was actually really surprised when I was looking it up. I was I was shocked that it was that low on both. Yeah, and that reminds me actually of when uh, once upon a time you and I looked up contemporary reviews of Dirty Dancing, mm-hmm. um, and I'm like I will talk about Dirty Dancing in like literally any opportunity. But you and I were both shocked at some of the reception of that film as well. Yeah. Not to suggest that the faculty is a cult classic on like quite on that level, but I, I just, I'm really, I'm just kind of shocked. But um, to get into my personal history with it, I definitely didn't see it in the theater. Um, I would not have been allowed to go to see it in the theater um, because that would have been when I was in eighth grade. My first memory of the movie was renting it from my local blockbuster Mm. when I was in high school. So this would have been around 2000. So it would have been like out for like a year or so. I remember I had this really like cute conversation with the girl who was behind the counter. I brought up the faculty and then probably like something else. And she was like, oh, the faculty, you know, have you seen it? And I said, no. And she was like, you're going to love it. Josh Hartnett is so hot in it. And I said, oh, I'm sure he is. I was like, but... I'm kind of here for Elijah Wood because I had and had might not be the right, quite the right tense of the verb, a huge crush on Elijah Wood. But it was really cute because she was like, oh, I like him, too. And and it was just like a fun, you know, girls who love movies kind of moment. And she said, I remember I do remember that she also said a couple other things like it's really well shot or she said like some kind of movie nerd thing. It was just fun. I missed those conversations that you used to be able to have at Blockbusters. Then thereafter, I rented that movie oodles of times because <laughs> <laughs> I loved it so much, which is um, still both does and doesn't surprise me. It only surprises me because I'm not a horror kind of girl. Right. Um, As documented on this podcast. Yes. Yeah. Um, But loved the characters, loved the settings. I have joked many times that my, like, the vibe of how I felt about high school was if you, like, combined the faculty and the craft and 10 Things I Hate About You. (laughs) So that's a, that is is a potent combination. (laughs) It is. That would also make a really interesting, like, movie marathon. It would. That would be really cool. Yeah. Like, like, not like a triple feature movie night. That'd be interesting. Yeah. And in conclusion, I absolutely love this movie. I make a habit of watching it at least once every couple of years. It is a surprisingly good Halloween film. Mm -hmm. Like, Halloween time movie. It doesn't, like... 
it doesn't like scream that in, in any like overt way. But I'm noticing that like I, I actually saw it a couple of places as like something to view for your Halloween movie watching season. One of my other uh, podcasts that I listen to regularly is Rogues Gallery. And they do this really cool thing where they will post a picture on one picture on each of their social media platforms that are clues for what their next who their next suspect is going to be. And there one of them was a car was was a car that looked I don't I don't remember what the car was that they were using that the picture was of, but it looked a lot. It was it was black and it was a classic car. And I was like, a lot of people were like, oh, you're doing the faculty. And I think I even sent, sent it to you and went, mm-hmm. what do you think? And you went, Ma-, like, because the other two clues didn't have, like, anything to do with the faculty. And you and I were like, I don't think so. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. But I found myself really hoping they were going to do it. And then they didn't. I think it was Halloween 5, which I haven't seen. And I actually haven't listened to that episode yet. I, uh, I just listened to their uh, as of this recording, newest episode uh, just yesterday, which was on the Haunted Mansion. Mm. That was a lot of fun. But when I saw that they weren't covering it, I thought, but we could. So that's how we ended up here. My history with the faculty is actually kind of bizarre. So I did not see, I don't even remember like seeing ads for it. I don't think I was even aware of it. The first time I saw it, I stumbled onto it i was channel surfing like back when i still had cable and i would actually you know we did the the channel surfing thing and it was on like a broadcast network like tbs Mm -hmm. or tnt like one of those yeah it was actually quite quite a bit into the movie it wasn't like super late it was the scene in which casey and delilah are in the are in the closet in the teacher's lounge yeah and it was it surprised me that it hooked me as fast and as much as it did because it was scary but i think it was um, but i it was i think it was me going is that elijah wood yeah because i didn't recognize the film but i was like i'm pretty sure that's elijah wood but th- those shots in that closet are kind of dark so it might have been a look alike from from my perspective at the time and i will admit this was post lord of the rings that i think i stumbled so it was probably like mid to late 2000s and yeah, it was also because it was a tele it was a network television run of it. It was censored. Sure. So there were quite a few moments where it was that just absolutely hysterically bad censoring. There's a moment right after the reveal of that Delilah has been taken and she runs out and gets in the car and they they all watch her drive away and there's that moment where Zeke just goes fuck like yeah, yeah, and he yeah. just yells it. Yeah, the version of that on TV was phooey. <laughs> that is amazing. It is amazing. It was amazing. And that was the thing, like, because it was so ridiculous, like, it was so bad that that almost kind of added to the charm of it. Like, yeah. I, I knew it was censored, but it was so over the top that it was actually a lot of fun. And yeah, I, I jived with it pretty much. And I was like, I don't. Like, what is this movie? Mm -hmm. But because I had come into it that late, and granted, that's not super late into it, but, like, I had missed, like, all of the character introductions, Mm -hmm. including Mary Beth's. So I think I picked up on the fact that she was, like, the new kid. But, I mean, her, her accent is... It's not super pronounced, but it's there. It's obviously enough that you can tell she's not from that town. Um, But... Like I was, I totally missed the bit in the beginning with the coach. So I had only seen the coach as possessed. Mm. So I was certain it was him. Now I have said, I think on this podcast, at least once that I am not super good at solving mysteries. That's another genre I don't tend to get as into because I don't tend to be able to solve the puzzle very well. So I was, I mean, hook, I was totally convinced. Like I didn't see any other possibility Oh, listen, the first time I watched that film, I distinctly remember that me and Stokely had the same opinion. Oh, at the reveal? You know, at the reveal. No I fucking was, way. No yeah. fucking way. You know? <laughs> and this is from a person who's who likes mystery and is pretty good at solving mysteries. No, but I am on record as saying, remember how um, Moriarty said to Sherlock Holmes, 
I love to watch you dance. That's kind of how I feel about detectives. Mm. Like, baby, I'm just here for the ride. I have no, you know, <laughs> like, this is not my responsibility. This is on yeah. you to figure out. Yeah. I am notorious for not knowing who done it until the very end, but I don't make any attempt. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. also not surprising. I was also sure that it was the coach. And like on repeat watches, it's one of those things on repeat watches, the beginning where he then turns and says, yeah, what? It's obvious. Well, and his, and his personality changes. Yeah. But no, I, I was convinced. I was convinced it was him to the point that when they went after Principal Drake, I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? You need to like go after the coach. So neither of us knew. Yeah. Now, I, I am curious. Do you remember when we when it first this movie first came up like between us? I remember us having a conversation about Elijah Wood and his acting. Me saying that outside of Lord of the Rings, my favorite film that he's been in is going to sound weird, but he did this like high school horror movie, The Faculty. And you were like, I like The Faculty. And I was like, oh, my God, let's be best friends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that, That sounds familiar. And that sounds like. And that or that that feels to me like deep storage, like that might have happened like long term, long term storage. Um, We may have had that conversation like when we were still in college. And I think very much like you, it surprised. Well, it surprises me. It surprised me then. And it still surprises me that I like this movie, not because like I didn't think this movie was good because I do. I actually think this is a very underrated film. But at the same time. It is kind of a it is it is kind of sci-fi horror and mm-hmm. that's not a genre that I have necessarily even opened up to at all until more recent years. But I did. I really enjoyed this movie and I think and we'll get into this in a little bit about our discussion, but well actually let's go ahead and just like get into our like overall thoughts and big takeaways from the film in its own right and like what it was like to go back to it you know, for mm-hmm. thinking about, like, talking about it critically. I mean, I'll be honest, I don't think we're going to be nearly as critical of this as we are with some of our others, because this is this is more one that I think you and I just, we just really enjoy this one. Yeah. And I think kind of the point of this as, like, a Halloween episode is, like, just to kind of have some spooky fun with it. But, yeah, I think that really, my biggest takeaway probably for the film at large is, like, Kind of like strange, kind. I mean, I not not to do the like, it connects to Stranger Things in this way. Like, not, not I'm not doing that intentionally, but it in kind of like Stranger Things. It doesn't really make sense to me that I like this movie, like that it appeals yeah. to me in the way that it does, and that I have as much fun with it because, like, a lot of people die in this movie, mm-hmm. and it's it's very creepy. And th- I mean, there is there there's one moment in particular that's like that. I mean, I you were with me. We watched this movie together and I was like, oh, no, and couldn't look at the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I do. I think this this movie is a lot of just like kind of spooky fun. Actually, it, this just occurred to me mm-hmm. first about the faculty. And then um, I was like, oh, well, this is why both of us can kind of get down with both the faculty and Stranger Things. What does a lot of work for me with the faculty is that it really seamlessly blends so many genres. It's not just a horror sci-fi crossover. It's also a high school drama. Mm-hmm. It's also really funny. It is. You're right. Yeah. So much of it is so funny, even in the like, even like in the most horrific parts, like when Zeke has just decapitated the teacher that he obviously has a very inappropriate relationship with and he's watching her head crawl toward her bo- toward her body and he just goes I fuck this and yeah. just like sprints off yeah like there's so many you know like aliens are taking over the world weigh it you know <laughs> well or like the fact that you and i laughed a lot like the, the when they're all getting high in this yes. like really tense moment <laughs> like they're all they're doing the classic sci-fi thing mm-hmm. of you know well we have to prove we're all human which uh, you know let's put a pin in that i want to yeah, come yeah, back yeah. to that but like and then you've got the the sort of face off between delilah and mary beth irony and then you've got Casey goes showdown. Like, like, 
that is so much funnier than it has any right to be. Yeah. And then when Stan starts cracking up too, because they're high, mm-hmm. like even though it doesn't fully make sense that that's how they'd react, it's it's hilarious. It's so funny. Yeah. I mean, like we are getting. Everyone is forcing everyone else to get high at gunpoint. Like, that is a loaded gun. And yet, it's so funny. It's so funny. And I think, like, that is also true of Stranger Things. I mean, that's the thing that it's known for. One of the things that it's primarily known for is how much of a genre smasher it is. Mm -hmm. Because it's a romance. It's a horror. It's a, you know, family drama. It's a... Thriller. It's a thriller. It's a coming of age. It's like, it's so much, you know, packed into one, you know... fantasy. Yeah. 13-hour fantasy or whatever. That's a really good point. I hadn't Mm -hmm. thought about that. You're right. That is something that it has in common with, with the faculty. I mean, and, you know, to their to the acknowledgement of the fact that Stranger Things does it more, it's a four soon to be five season series yeah. as opposed to one, an hour and 44 minute long film. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it doesn't have the same amount of time to do what it does, but it they do actually manage to do both. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, it's wild to me how much world building is crammed into that hour and 44 minutes. Mm hmm. Well, you have the the very you have the conventions of like everyone's in their own clique, mm-hmm. or at least have their own cliche or stereotype that they're associated with. But I also agree with you that like at the same time, it's doing a lot of work right away because I mean, almost immediately they're all contradicting the clique or the association mm-hmm. that they have. Like you have Stan going, "I'm going to quit the football team." You have Stokely saying, I'm not a lesbian. Mm -hmm. And then you have Casey and Delilah teaming up for the newspaper, like, almost immediately. Mm -hmm. And Zeke demonstrating how intelligent he is, despite his determination to be a little pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Zeke is a remarkably intelligent character. Zeke is a, I think, a gratifyingly complex character. I think one of my favorite moments in the entire movie actually is in the scene in the classroom when he rips the the blade off the cutter. Yeah. Um I don't even know what the proper term for that is, but like I think it's a paper cutter. Yeah, the big the big one and the choreography of that is really clever, like just the the writing of of that and the breakdown of the action and it's shot in a really cool way. Yeah. It's kind of the moment when the film kind of levels up in terms mm-hmm. of like this is now where it's elevating the action mm-hmm. and it's like yeah, it's just really cool. It's also the moment of group cohesion mm-hmm. when it becomes us versus them. Yeah. Because Zeke rips that off and he makes the first swipe, but then it's Stan. The, mm-hmm. He like he just tosses it to him because he trusts Stan mm-hmm. more than he trusts like any kind of outside forces. So yeah, that's that's one of my favorite um, moments in the in the film. Even though that's when poor John, poor John Stewart. Stewart on record, we love you, John Stewart, and like he does he does a great job like as this suburban Ohio teacher, both uninfected and infected. He's he's great as both. And that's something that I have to say about like actually most of the most of the teachers, the, the faculty, most most of the faculty, <laughs> yeah. if you will, um, like coach is fantastic as both um, principal Drake is fantastic um, in both. And then obviously Miss Burke is fantastic on both sides. Really interesting. The kind of transformation that she went through. So, yeah, no creative expense was was spared on uh characterization i think i said to you off mic that like the casting of robert patrick was brilliant Mm -hmm. because i mean he's a great actor i haven't really seen a lot of his the films that he's in in fact like just looking at imdb he's the one the four films that come up under known for are terminator 2 the faculty fire in the sky and the marine i mean of those i've only seen those two in Mm -hmm. fact those might be the only two films that i've seen him in but they're fairly memorable mm-hmm. terminator 2 in particular considering that terminator 2 was such a big deal and it, this this was made in 98 it mm-hmm. would have been relatively recent so casting him in this role is so interesting because it's very much playing on that expectation i think because if you know him as the t-1000 mm-hmm. i think that also fed into my understanding of oh, of course he's the bad guy yeah, yeah <laughs> you yeah. know but it's yeah it's a very brilliant move because He's not. He's just been... To, it's it's whatever is controlling him. I mean, he was a 24-carat asshole before he became 
well, an alien puppet. But he wasn't a killer. True. You know, again, a cliche. He's a stereotype of like the hard ass coach. Yeah. Right. I like the contrast, though, at the end when he's back to being a hard ass, but mm-hmm. like it's not a big deal. Yeah. It's an interesting like he's nothing's really changed with him, but like the vibe is totally different in terms of how the characters around him react to him. Yeah. We mentioned the everyone has to prove their human scene. I remember wondering when when watching it this time, I hadn't thought of this before, but I wondered, I wonder where this this archetype, I don't know how to, like, this kind of scene first, like, originated in sci-fi because I feel like I have seen it time and again. I feel like it shows up, it's almost like kind of a rite of passage depending on the content that you're you're dealing with, mm-hmm. that this scene will will come up. And I, 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 I didn't have enough time to, like, actually look into this before we recorded today, but I was, I kind of wondered if it originates with the original version of the thing mm-hmm. either the original film the the 50s one i believe is when it was made or the novel that it is in fact based on i think you're probably right and if it's not the first it's one of yeah one of the first i think it's definitely the most famous my first encounter with that trope was an episode of the x-files which is based on the thing really pretty closely it's basically like a like a small remake in which if the folks are infected with the parasite, they have these like two little bumps that show up um, on like the back of their neck. So the the version of like everybody's a human scene is you have to let the other people look at the back of your neck, which becomes problematic as time sure. goes on. Sure. And so, yeah, I don't think I was in any way surprised by that. But then like when you step back and think about it, it does show up in like a lot of really interesting ways. But this scene was one of the first ones where it's like, it's not that everyone has to like lift their sleeve or has to like, mm-hmm. you know, you have to like submit a blood test or something like that. Like you have to get high. Yeah. And you're doing it at gunpoint to prove that you're still human. So you have to be become not only vulnerable, but disadvantaged mm-hmm. or um, you're willfully taking psychic damage. Yes. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Which puts you at such a disadvantage because you need to be alert and on your toes in order to continually fight against this thing that's trying to attack you and it could be coming from anywhere. And so you, you know, you're willfully making yourself that much more vulnerable. And because the drug does affect everybody differently, you have no way of knowing how it's going to hit. Like maybe um, it'll hit you the way it hit Casey, where you'll just be like giggly. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it'll hit you the way it hit Stokely, where she just became like she, I swear she like curled in on herself like a little turtle trying to get back into its shell. Like maybe it made her like the sensory input you know overwhelming or maybe it made her like more anxious or like thinking darker thoughts or something emotional yeah and so but you don't know so in that way it's kind of like it's less like alcohol and more maybe something like acid where you could have a great trip or not a great trip and yet most of what's in there is caffeine right i think they were going for a more acidy like yeah effect not in that like nobody had hallucinations or anything like that but they were going for something a lot stronger than you're just snorting caffeine you know i mean mary beth is obviously lying Mm -hmm. but the fact that that is also set up you know a that's a bigger that's one of your first clues right that she preemptively is like well that would kill me Mm -hmm. uh, because i'm allergic wink but in this moment when she says i'm allergic like that would be a real problem. Yeah. Like, let's say she wasn't actually the alien queen and she was just this new kid who happened to be very allergic to whatever's in this drug. Like, between a rock and a hard place. I mean, I think she probably would have died, you know? And then what would they do? That's more of, like, an internal, like, world-building question of, like, that I would, like, want to ask Hartnett or rodriguez sure like what do you think would have happened if that had actually been legit i think what do you think the direction they would have gone in is rather than shooting her they probably would have made her leave at gunpoint and she would have been like ejected from the group Mm -hmm. like that's just kind of my impression based on like how 
the characters treat each other. Like when they realize that Stan has been infected, they just make him go away. Mm -hmm. And like when Delilah confronts Casey and she's doing her whole like, let's do it together. He's just like, and runs away (laughs) and doesn't try to, you know, they don't get the zombie solution. Right. You know? Yeah. Stokely shoots at her. Yeah. After she attacks them. After she knows. Yes. No, no, no. I mean, after she attacks them. Oh, that's true. And she destroys the, and she destroys she destroys the, the setup. The setup yeah. And they have no way of knowing that she's not going to turn around and try to infect them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's true. So, and also, Stokely really dislikes Delilah. Yeah. Um, in yeah. fact, I remember as a teenager when uh, Stokely goes, I'll fucking shoot her. I was like, I will hold your coat. Because yeah. <laughs> I also really did not like Delilah as a teenager. Yeah. I don't super love her as an adult. You know... Delilah might be one of the few things about this film that I'm like, don't love it. So there are a couple things that don't age well. And I actually think that Delilah is one of them. And what they try to do with Delilah is one of them. Because Delilah is kind of this archetype of the bitchy cheerleader woman, or the bitchy cheerleader girl, who is obsessed with makeup only cares about her reputation, is like immaculately dressed from head to toe every day and snipes at absolutely everyone to keep herself at the, you know, as like the apex predator of, um, you know, the high school ecosystem. There's there's a very strong, especially in the 90s archetype that like that's all there is to mm-hmm. this girl mm-hmm. that she's just a fucking bitch mm-hmm. as you get more into the 90s and then more towards the 2000s there's a little bit of this like girl power effort to kind of peel back the mask of that girl and maybe she's got like a hidden pain underneath and we're trying to like humanize her a little bit and i see an effort in some cases in some scenes mm-hmm. to do that with delilah I mean, I remember saying to you, especially like in the first scene in the bathroom when she says to Casey, oh, she told her mom, but she's like, mom, she drinks. It was a nightmare. And so she she like passes right by that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and we know that's got to be horrific yeah. to live with. And then she says to Casey late in the film when, you know, once she's been infected, she's trying to convince him to join. I haven't been this happy since before my dad died, Mm -hmm. which also is a horrific thing to live with when you're a very, you know, a grief like that when you're a very young person. Those are really the only two times we see a glimmer of humanity. Like it would have been cool to see maybe some reflection of that in the final scene of them together. Mm hmm. Like, I think one of the things I said to you when we had finished watching the movie, I said, I think to me they missed the mark with Casey's epilogue. I think the epilogue with Casey should have been with his parents. I don't know what that looks like, but that's where I found myself. I'm of two minds about what Casey's epilogue should have looked like. On the one hand, if Stokely is not going, is is going to be straight, Mm -hmm. well, if she's not going to be a lesbian, as a 2023 viewer... I have some complex feelings about Stokely. I I believe her that she's into Stan, and I'm glad that she ended up with Stan. But if she was going to be into dudes, honestly, I see her more with Casey than I see her with Stan. That might be a controversial opinion, but I see more of a rapport between Casey and Stokely than I do between Stokely and Stan. Maybe that's that's just a Heidi thing. I definitely see more of a closeness between the two of them than I see between Casey and Delilah. I guess I just really don't like Delilah. And I also, I have a little bit of a problem with Casey's feelings about Delilah. Yeah. I have a problem with him taking creep shots of her and posting them in his bedroom. Yeah. That also does not age well. There's another Stranger Things parallel right there. Yes. With Jonathan's photos of Nancy. I think there's a little bit too much room for him to see her kind of like as a trophy. I think the epilogue between them just doesn't feel earned. No. That's, I think, my biggest issue with it is that it doesn't, whereas Stokely and Stan, that relationship feels earned to me because the movie took the time to develop that relationship and develop them seeing each other. Mm -hmm. But especially because Delilah leaves the party so early, I mean, relatively speaking, 
it just doesn't, I, I don't get, and I, I also don't get a lot of romantic chemistry between the two of them, especially given the fact that they're together and it's like, he's got all this fame attached to him. So in a way it doesn't feel like she's actually changed that much Mm -hmm. by the end. And that's not a great look. Yeah. It's, it's a weird note. I mean, Zeke gets up on the football team. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, still smoking cigarettes, though. Yeah, but... And still apparently having a very inappropriate relationship with one of his teachers. It's fine. That also doesn't age super well. Oh, God, no. I'm actually really curious to know what... You, we've never actually talked about a lot of that, off, like, in general. I don't actually know what your thoughts are on Miss Burke. This is also right around the time of um, Dawson's Creek. I'm... Pretty sure it was the first season of Dawson's Creek. There was this like highly, highly talked about arc for one of the characters because he had an affair with one of his teachers. There were, you know, think pieces about this and and so on and so forth. I remember thinking in like in 1998 when I watched Dawson's Creek, because I did see that as it aired. I remember thinking like, oh, wow, like they have a lot of chemistry or whatever, whatever. But I also remember thinking... There is no way on God's green earth that this would ever happen because my teachers are another species. So when I saw the whole, you know, in like in media, like hot for teacher, I would be like, what are you talking about? I was a little bit older, you know, when I saw the faculty for the first time and I was like, oh, my God, this is so awkward. (laughs) Yeah. But I was like, he is he's such a rebel. He's so unconventional. Like, I think it's it's like a forbidden thing. And I think he's like hot for her, but I don't think she would ever act on it, even though I think she's attracted to him, too. And then she gets that um, and then she gets the parasite and then she like becomes so much more like sexually aggressive with him, both in that conversation where she confronts him about selling drugs And then later when she tries to attack him in the car. But his reaction to her is very different. He's not like you like you can kind of see like midway through the conversation. He shifts a little bit like in his face and his demeanor. And it's not just that he says, whoa, woman, what are you on? It's like you you see there's this like click in his eyes where he's like, this isn't this isn't you. Mm -hmm. The end I grapple with a little bit because... I can kind of, it's fiction, it's fine, about the beginning part of their relationship where he's just trying to charm her and clearly has a crush on her, but she won't admit that she reciprocates. But then she's like sitting in the, sitting in the bleachers and like does the little like finger wave thing. I'm like, sure, okay, yeah, whatever. (laughs) And then move away as quickly as possible. Um, uh, I don't know. Also... For context, like, I am always going to have, like, self-righteous feelings about this because I have been a teacher and, you know, an educator. So it's not just that when I was a student, this idea would never occur to me. Now that I have been a teacher, I would literally rather die than take advantage of one of my students in that way by abusing that power relationship. So... I'm kind of just like not necessarily the right person to ask how that hits. I think for me is just there's something that doesn't sit terribly comfortably with me that it's only after the women are infected. Well, Delilah starts to like kind of use it against Casey or like right before they end up witnessing <laughs> the alien first alien action. Like she's like, you're into me. What? Yeah. And there's there's something about that interaction that I don't like, but that's pre her getting the you yeah. know having the parasite get get to her. But with Miss Burke, it's not just that clearly there's an attraction there on her end and she's just not admitting to it. I what doesn't sit comfortably with me is the way that Zeke goes out of his way to make her uncomfortable because he doesn't I don't really think he's expecting her to change her mind. I think he's like I'm aware of this and I'm and I'm kind of relishing in it. It's the only thing about Zeke I don't like. Zeke is a button pusher. Um, I know. I don't like that. I don't like people like that. Yeah. Um, I like pretty much everything though else about him in the film. Mm-hmm. Not that. That like that's something that 
really bothers me. And I don't like the metaphor that then it's she's only able to stand up to him when it's not her. Well, let me complicate that a little bit. Like, so in the classroom scene, she asks a question, what does this passage in Robinson Crusoe reflect, like thematically? And it's obviously loneliness. Zeke says Crusoe is afraid he's going to be stuck on this island forever with nothing but calluses, meaning like calluses from his hands, from jerking off. And... That is a perfectly legitimate answer to the question. Yeah, it's a little crass, but it's a very good answer to the question. And she says, no, it's about isolation. But he then says, yeah, exactly. But his external isolation is nothing in comparison to the internal loneliness that he feels. She says she thinks about it for a second and then she says, yeah. And then he says, like I said, calluses. And so they are actually like meeting each other on an intellectual plane in that scene. And then later she approaches him by the car and says, you know, I've had all these complaints. Do you want to talk to me or do you want to take it? She's trying to be a hard ass or she's trying to be an authority figure. Rather, she's not trying to be too, too tough. And then he goes through his whole spiel of like, you're you're too tense. Let me offer you a laxative. But she says all these things like if, you know, you're so clever and you're so smart, I wish you would just use your intellect. And if you did, you wouldn't have to repeat your senior year. That bothers him so much because it's so true that that's when he brings out the cherry flavored condoms. And that's when she breaks and she says she's like, that's so rude. And she walks away. But he's really like they both walk away equally hurt. I don't know, like maybe this is a stretch, but I do feel like she is standing up to him. Like the fact that she walked away and and even the fact that she demonstrated that she was hurt instead of escalating and yelling at him or calling him names or calling him a little shit the way she does later actually is standing up to him. Not and like refusing to further engage, whereas once she's parasited. You know, she starts like, I'm going to shove my foot so far up your ass. You'll be sucking my toes till graduation. Like that is not standing up to him. That's bullying him in front of the entire student body. So I, I'm with you. I don't love that she only finally f- seems comfortable in her own skin. She's only dominant. She's only dominant yes. when she's been infected. Yeah. Whereas Delilah has been dominant this entire time. Yeah. I would make an argument that Delilah's more submissive once she's been infected, mm-hmm. especially in the way she treats Casey. Yeah. So that idea, like the monstrous femininity and is like a reflection of straight dudes fears of women's sexuality. I think like there there is definitely like that kind of that trope definitely exists. I'm not saying it, it doesn't ever. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying I don't necessarily see it here mm-hmm. except with Mary Beth. Mm-hmm. I think you can make a lot more of a stronger argument with Mary Beth in that. You know, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Zeke's isolation. And actually, that makes me re I just hadn't thought about that before. But I think that really adds a kind of that adds a nice poetic note to the end of him being on the on the football team. It's like that's a community. Mm-hmm. Like, I just thought it was it was a cool inverse of the of the beginning. But it's like, actually, that there's there's something there. There's mm-hmm. something to that. But yeah, even though we only see Casey's parents that on that one occasion, I still think that there's more set up there for a more rewarding epilogue with them than there was with Delilah. Yeah. And part of it is, you know, that the parents have to be useless because this is a teen led film. So if the parents have, you know, any usefulness or authority whatsoever, then it's just going to gunk up the works. But I said to you that Casey's parents feel they feel very 90s to me because I feel like we had a stereotype or a stereotypical understanding of American parenting in the 90s that parents were very like hands off like they weren't super involved in their kids' lives and kind of the only times that they were involved in their kids' lives was when the kids got in trouble and then the parents were like pretty authoritarian. And now 
there's a more um and like we're you know we're pretty much a generation later at this point so it makes sense that there would have been a shift but i think the idea um or like the most popular conception of american parenthood now is that american parents are extremely overindulgent and that they're like you know hyper invested and they know absolutely everything about their kids lives and that you know um I mean, every generation says that the next generation is spoiled, but I don't even mean that I see this perception that American parents spoil their children. It's that, like, American parents are, like, super invested in what their children are thinking and feeling, whereas in the 90s, the common perception was that American parents didn't give a shit about what their kids were thinking and feeling. Which is why you have all those memes about the difference between Gen X kids and Gen Z kids. Mm-hmm. Millennials. And uh, yeah, and the millennials like get caught in the middle. We get the brunt <laughs> from both sides, yeah. So I just think that Casey's parents are really, really like a good example of like that, that Gen X idea of parenting. They don't believe him for even a second after, you know, the after the faculty put together their little, you know, song and dance. And whereas there's much more evidence to believe Casey that maybe not that something supernatural was happening, but that there had been a legitimate attack versus like his dad ripping apart his school books and conv- and being convinced that he's on drugs. Like, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that Casey up to this point has never shown any evidence of, like, delinquent behavior or being on drugs or being in trouble at school or with the police or, like, anything that would justify this kind of draconian punishment. Mm -hmm. And yet I remember being a teen watching the film and being like, yeah, yeah, that is exactly how I can see people how like I can see parents reacting in that position and like what would my parents have done I don't know what would your parents have done I don't know you and I had two very different upbringings um so of course like no no two families are the same etc etc but I just again I just thought it was an interesting kind of time capsule and I do kind of mean pop culture I don't mean like what I was seeing among my friends Mm. the 90s and into the early 2000s were very like anti-authority that was a big vibe of those of those two decades to me particularly in fiction and in film and obviously those trends reflect what's going on in culture at the time so there is that so I think that what might have been a better move would have been to have had Casey maybe have had a history of being you know, especially now, knowing what we know more about mental health and whatnot, like maybe Casey suffers from anxiety. Maybe he's had to be on anti, anti-anxiety anti medication before. Maybe he, not to do this, but maybe kind of like Joyce, he has had some some difficulty with, distur- with distinguishing fact from fiction. Maybe he has made kind of outlandish claims before. You could still keep the thing of nothing quite on this level. Like that mm-hmm. could have been his... You know, his reaction could have been like, this is different. And they're like, no, it's an escalation. Mm-hmm. But again, that feels like a very 2023 perspective to have. I also don't think that the film is trying to portray them as stupid or neglectful mm-hmm. or as bad people or as bad parents. Yeah, it's just I, I just think it's interesting. It's also interesting. I don't know if I have any like, you know, direct lines to draw, but it's interesting to think about the way that coach is portrayed Mm -hmm. because he also feels very, very nineties to me and Mm -hmm. the way that he can get away with talking to those football players. I do not think anybody could get away with doing that even as a a sports coach in 2023. Now I don't know. I didn't play sports in 1998 and I certainly don't play them now, but I know that coaches can be very like gruff and tough and, and whatnot, but like that level of abusiveness, I don't know if you could get away with that. I have to say, just speaking of coach, I do want to, I, I really love the way 
the scene is written between he and Casey mm-hmm. of the, I don't think you should run unless someone should run unless being chased, being chased. I like that. That whole, that, that whole interaction. It's very short, but I like it. Mm-hmm. I really like the way that's, that that scene is written. And a lot of that is also the portrayal between the two actors. Yeah. Between, between Wood and Patrick. Like it's, it's good. I also found that scene quite relatable, you know, all the way back when I watched it the first time, because it's there's there always seems to be a pressure from other students and from teachers and parents who are involved in the more like, again, air quotes, like socially acceptable hobbies like team sports versus the things that I was into, I would much more likely have been into photography like Casey was as opposed to wanting to be on the girls basketball team or something. And like there are definitely going to be times when the basketball coach or the gym teacher or somebody is going to be like, what do you mean you don't want to participate in this like cultural icon that is basketball and you're like i don't fucking like it mm-hmm. go away and leave me alone you know mm-hmm. and that's why i absolutely love the line i don't believe a person should run unless they're being chased because i've actually used it a couple times to try to get out of those conversations mm. so I, I am curious since this is technically our halloween episode what would you say for you in the faculty is your do you think is the scariest scene spookiest scariest scene that's actually a surprisingly difficult question to answer but i do i have two okay one of the reasons that i am not necessarily a horror film girly is because i am prone to i'm prone to nightmares and i bring that up because one image that has shown up in my nightmares more than once is um when stan goes outside to check the football team coach and all of the the hornets um on the field and then there's that flash of lightning and you see the like coach's face is like semi his human face is semi-transparent and you see that row of like horrible teeth and the tentacles coming out that is not a fun image no like that might actually be the most frightening image in the film for me Mm. like if we take scary as Scary as meaning frightening and scary as meaning, not depressing, distressing. Um, Then the most distressing moment of the film for me, especially baby Heidi, was literally the very end of the film when Casey has struck Monster Mary Beth in the eye and she like spits the like tadpole things at him and you think they might actually get in and he's screaming because it hurts so much i was so upset i was ready to crawl through that screen and take care of her myself you know when we didn't know if it was going to work or not um so that was like the most like upsetting scary um and you know this better go the way i want it to scary how about you honestly the first thing that comes to mind is the scene in the shower when Mrs. Brummel appears and comes up to, to Stan. Yeah. That is a, that's a strong um, candidate because it's, there's a real like sadness to that scene too. Yeah. I also said to you, like the, like when Stan like tries to like kind of comfort her, I, I also really appreciate that they didn't make it weird. Yeah. And it, and it's weird. It's a weird moment, but I don't feel like, like Stan doesn't, say something shitty yeah like i mean he's surprised you would be but he's i think he kind of waffles between what the fuck and and concern you know yeah like the way that it's shot yes is yeah. actually really respectful to both characters yes yeah, serious respect to rodriguez for the way he handled that scene yeah yeah because it could have been deeply inappropriate yes. and weird and aged bad and everything but that is one of the scenes that really doesn't age badly at all no it doesn't and you're right like stan going mrs brummel what the fuck like extremely understandable yeah you know um, but then the second she she says, please help me, I can't breathe, he immediately switches into that's just a human to human moment. Moment. Yeah. And then when he shouts to Casey, get help. Get help, yeah. You know? Yep. Yeah, I think that, that scene is very frightening and very and very sad. 
and the way that like that was the moment that I was like, oh no, I can't look at it. Like yeah. it's when her scalp comes apart. Yeah. Like that <laughs> that was just too much for me. Yeah. Again, for me, scary usually ends up equating to what is the most like distressing and upsetting. And that scene is so upsetting. Yeah. And then of course knowing what happens that they just basically kill her and stick her in a closet. I know. Do you have a favorite scene? I think the whole, like, take drugs to prove you're human scene (laughs) might be my favorite, just because the dialogue is so ridiculous Mm -hmm. and so fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's another thing that I really love about the film, is that it has this, like, it's not even purple prose. It's, like sparkling yeah. diamond glitter lisa frank purple prose and it knows it and it knows it and it works and it just goes with it and that is v- that like i feel like that's something that i feel like you can attribute directly to rodriguez yeah. as well like like it feels like he he is a some he's a pretty self-aware filmmaker yeah and i like i think he's strongest when he is very self-aware and like i think that's that feels like a a, a rodriguez signature thing so talking about rodriguez as a filmmaker also baby heidi didn't really know that much about film or filmmaking at the time because i was in like 10th grade (laughs) and uh i had just hadn't started studying film yet but on mtv there used to be this show and i tried to look it up on youtube i got a couple like little clips but not quite what I was looking for so I don't quite remember the name of the show but basically it used to be an actor would go through um, Blockbuster and would pick out movies and recommend them to you and I remember Elijah Wood's episode because he picked up another film by Rodriguez and I don't remember which one it was but he said I really recommend this one. I worked with him on the faculty and you know Rodriguez, he does XYZ. You know, it's it shows up a lot in this film. And I had not seen the film that he was recommending, but I had seen the faculty and whatever the like trope or, you know, like camera work thing or whatever that he talked about in this other film was also very present in the faculty. And that was the first time that I kind of realized directors might have like a a, like a stylistic fingerprint that would show up across their work and the same way that like every story that I write there's going to be like a a set of themes that I really really like working with and you can kind of like pull that thread across all of my stories that it would be the same with directors and it really it opened up my perspective and made me think about seeking out other films by a director if I really liked a movie in the same way as maybe seeking out another film that had an actor in it that I really liked and thinking about, oh, this is something from the director and this is something from the actor or something like that. Like, I, I give him a lot of credit for, like, being the one to kind of, like, flip the switch on that. Like, open open up your perspective on it. Yeah. Let's let's dig into some some of the the references and or similarities. First off, I think we need to make it clear. This is not we we do not pertain to believe that that we have seen any sort of indication from the Duffer brothers or anyone else for that matter that this this film is a reference or influence on Stranger Things. As far as I know, it is not in yeah. any way. Yeah. However, um, the Duffers were around in the 90s, so this might have been at least somewhat in their consciousness. But as to what what parallels we saw, I mean, as I kind of indicated in the in 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 our <laughs> in the refresher at the beginning, Harrington High School, come on. Yeah, that was hilarious. We both went, oh my God. Yeah. When I that <laughs> cropped up because neither one of us remembered. Because why would you remember the name of the high school? I mean, I certainly will now. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I think the other big parallel that we both went, hey, was Zeke's car. Yes. And then I think the first question I asked you was like, what do you how do you think Zeke and Billy would have gotten along? Because I'm, of course, referring to Billy's car. I feel like Billy and Zeke would kind of be similar to Billy and Steve in that I think Billy would really have a hate boner for Zeke. And I don't think that Zeke would give a shit about Billy. 
Whereas the fight between Billy and Steve ended with Steve being really pretty badly hurt. I don't think that fight would go very well for Billy. I think that fight would go very badly for Billy, actually. I think it might be kind of a knockdown drag out fight. Yeah. Like, I think they would probably both end up getting hurt. Mm -hmm. But I think Billy would be... More, you hurt. know, more hurt. Yeah, Zeke would win. I think. Yeah. I, well, it's funny because I actually, I, I think it would be. We never got to see obvious for obvious reasons. We never got to see Billy and Eddie interact. But I, I think yeah. Zeke's got a little bit of Eddie in him. Yeah, he does. Down to the drug dealing. <laughs> down to down to the drug dealing. <laughs> um. So one of the first parallels between Billy and Zeke is is the car. So Billy's got the Camaro, and. Zeke's got the Pontiac GTO, which rest in peace, Pontiac. That is a beautiful car. And, um, and, and I have to say, because it's true, <laughs> that Zeke deserves his car. He does. Whereas I've said, I'm almost 100% sure I've said on the podcast that Billy. You've said it twice. That Billy podcast. does not deserve yes. that car. Yes. Which also, for like greater context, I am much in the habit of saying whether characters do or don't deserve cars if i find said car beautiful completely unrelated property we were watching sandman on netflix and one of the big bads in season one has a gorgeous gorgeous car and like pretty much every time he and the car appeared on screen i was just like compulsively saying you do not deserve that car. <laughs> I think this came up too recently when we watched season two of Good Omens, which like that's a whole other conversation. But like I yeah. think it came up about the Bentley and which Crowley and like Crowley absolutely deserves his car. But I think we were. Yeah, we were like three quarters of the way through the movie. And I was like, the nicest thing I can say about Zeke and the thing that I can say about him that demonstrates how I feel about him is yeah. he deserves that car. Mm hmm. But yeah, I think Zeke and what Zeke and Eddie have in common is that they are a little bit of a subversion of the societal stereotype of the loser drug dealer. Mm -hmm. Because both of them are portrayed as that other people perceive them to be losers. Mm -hmm. But we, the audience, don't perceive them to be losers. Well, and I think there's also something that they have in common where they profess themselves to be like kind of an asshole and Mm -hmm. you know i don't care about anybody i'm too cool they're both repeating their senior year but the the thing though about both of them is that they're actually deeply compassionate people Mm -hmm. i don't think they're all that similar in terms of a lot of their personality but i think they're they're like oeuvre is yeah similar i think zeke struggles to show his compassion more than eddie does to be fair zeke does not have a 14 year old who looks up to him true and zeke is not is not isolated. Mm-hmm. Eddie is. Eddie is isolated for a good portion of season four. And then who are the people that are helping him? It's it's Dustin. And then it's like the other, you know, kids as well as the other teenagers. But it's like very different. Yeah. But they are both dealing with <laughs> their entire world. You know, these these monstrous invaders. So, yeah, you know, uh, the other thing that I found that I was like, wow, that actually does give me Stranger Things vibes in a big, big way is the I found a new species scenes, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly with Casey, you know, very much reminiscent of Dustin and Dart and also Mr. Clark, frankly. Yeah. Another parallel is the consistent pop culture references, specifically like within each individual property. Right. And specifically drawing on them for guidance, fighting their foes. Yeah. In Stranger Things, it's Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. And in the faculty, it's classic sci-fi. Well, and kind of in Stranger Things, I would say it's sort of fantasy in general, because like they they're constantly referencing Lord of the Rings Mm -hmm. and they're they're referencing like Star Wars and, you know, like all sorts of pop culture properties, because like and I would say that to some degree, like there is some there it is more than just classic sci-fi in the faculty, but it's. It's mostly that in the same way that that Stranger Things is mostly Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, they reference um, Men in Black and Independence Day Mm -hmm. in the faculty, both of which were fairly recent properties. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was cool. I was like, oh, yeah. And it's it's because it's particularly it's not just that like they're dropping names and they're Mm -hmm. just referencing like these things are contemporary. It's literally like part of the narrative of them figuring out what to do. Yeah. And I think that like that, like that's not unique to these two properties, but it's something that they have in common in a pretty overt way. 
Yeah, when did Scream come out? Because I think Scream might have been the first one to do that. 96. So yeah, in Scream, one of the conceits is it's a film that where all the characters essentially know they're in a horror film. Mm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. in the bad guys, like, do you like scary movies? You know, like right, this, right, these right. are the rules that you have to follow in order to survive a scary movie. So funny story. I have not seen Scream, but I have seen the Scream inspired episode of Boy Meets World. And then there was Sean. Okay. So, and they, I mean, it's a very, very, it's like not subtle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the most famous episodes of, of Boy Meets World. So, and then I, and so, and then another, another thing I thought about was, I mean, just the small town setting. Yeah. You know, you have, it doesn't especially feel like Hawkins in its aesthetic, the way that other films, towns might like, I don't know, maybe say Amity, but the, you know, the quaint out of the way, difficult to get any real help from anyone in any fast manner who would believe us vibe that that definitely feels stranger things to me for sure even down to the like you know if you were a demogorgon or if you were a squid monster Mm -hmm. as casey says would you blow up the white house independence day style or would you sneak in through the back door i feel like that's a line that gets like ridiculed a lot but i like it no, I think it's a great line. Like, is it dramatic? Yes. But the is whole it, film is dramatic. Yes. It's very on brand for, for what the rest, yeah. it, like it fits perfectly. And also it's kind of hard to argue with it. Yeah. Frankly. And then I don't know if this is true for Scream as well, but I feel like probably the most like broad scale comparison that I would make between the two is kind of its general purpose. You know, aside from just like, we want to tell this story. Neither one of them are like really based on anything. Both of, you know, if the faculty is an, is kind of a 90s retrospective in a similar way to Stranger Things as an 80s retrospective. Even if the faculty was made in the 90s, it ages. I mean, you even kind of said about it being like a time capsule. It ages kind of like a snapshot in a particular kind of way because it's paying homage to older influences as well. Mm-hmm. I, I just feel like there's something I don't know that I have anything more articulate beyond that, but just it. Stranger Things making it, you know, is not subtle about the fact that this is a this is a retrospective. This is an homage to 80s fantasy, 80s horror, 80s sci fi. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it has that in common with the faculty in, yeah. a, in a way that I had not considered until I kind of sat down to prepare for talking about it in this context and really thinking about the direct similarities. And I'm like, I think that might be the biggest thing that they have in common. Again, even though one was made in the the 2010 the 20 teens and the other was made in the time that it's that it's sort of paying homage to in its own way yeah again it comes back to that self-awareness on the part of the the direction and the writing and i think that's one of the reasons that it does age as well as it does is because it's kind of backwards looking you know it does the whole nerds are kind of the ones who help save the world but it's not just the nerds like and that's something that stranger things has in common too is that they you know, it's not just the nerdy kids. You have a multitude of different types of people and all the best quest narratives are made up of a kind of conglomeration. All your best D&D parties are made up of a group of different. I mean, that's my opinion. When you have a wide you know, range of talents and abilities and knowledge, I think that's, you know, that's yeah. it's almost like diversity is a good thing. <laughs> but like, you know, the idea that like you have this deliberate intent of saying you know they could have stopped at invasion of the body snatchers but they didn't they go all the way back to Heinlein Mm -hmm. and I think that's that's cool yeah even if they don't have a lot of overt similarities they they don't feel mismatched I feel like you could go from one to the other pretty 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 smoothly yeah I think it's definitely a case of if you like stranger things you'll like the faculty if you like the faculty you'll like stranger things yeah. So if, you know, you, the listener, are like looking for something spooky to watch around this time of year and, you know, you're, you know, need a suggestion for a group movie night or something, uh, suggest the faculty. It's a good it's a good watch. I mm-hmm. think it's it's one of those films where, like, I feel like it might be kind of a hard sell if, for people who hadn't seen it before. Mm-hmm. But like it's this might be a new way to, to sell it is say, like, it's actually got a lot in common with Stranger Things more than you'd realize. Yeah. But all in all, we love this film. It was it was a blast to to rewatch it. Yeah, it's good. It's a good one. And now for our little coming attractions uh, 
portion. This is going to be very short. This is the bit in which we discuss whether or not uh, season five is likely to have any elements from this particular property. I doubt it. I mean, it's not. This is kind of an era. This is kind of a mood point because this wasn't a direct influence in the first place. Yeah. I guess the only thing I will say that I would hope maybe they that it would have in common with this film is that we get a nice epilogue where everybody lives happily ever after, except the bad guys. True. <laughs> like yes, extremely. Please. I mean, I agree that we're kind of like bending the um, bending the rules a little bit because this this wasn't an influence on Stranger Things, but like. You know, if we want to have more classic muscle cars, that would be fine. Yes. That would be fine. And everybody magically coming back to life, I'm not going to argue. Mm-hmm. And uh, please do not put any more pens in John Stewart's eye, though. Yeah. No, thank you. Well, then I think that is going to conclude our contemplation on the faculty. As always, thank you for listening. I'm going to throw a question out to the listeners, though. What would you like to hear us discuss on future episodes of Starcourt Cinema? Now is the time to weigh in. As I have said in a previous episode of this podcast, which uh, you can go back and listen to if you missed it, uh, there are a bunch of episodes slated for a future release in 2024. We're taking the last few months of the year to record and get back on track. But if there is a film or franchise influential to Stranger Things that you would particularly like to hear us delve into, please get in touch. Links to our email and socials are in the show notes as always, and we would love to hear from you. Also, if you're a fan of our pod, do consider rating and reviewing us. Coffee and Contemplation, as always, is available wherever you you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, is this usually the point where someone says, let's get the fuck out of here? Let's get the fuck out of here. Over and out. I thought for sure it was a firebird. It's a Camaro. Oop. Well, <laughs> <laughs> like muscle cars is like my specialty and i was just wrong i didn't think it was either of those do do you know what billy's billy's car is billy's car is the camaro sorry and zeke's car is a pontiac gto oh so that's why you well it would have been cool if they were both pontiac that's what i thought because i thought billy drove a firebird and i would have been like oh they're both pontiacs and again like this was not an intentional thing but that would have been cool though but people give their like characters um, muscle car Pontiacs or you know we could have said something like that but nope yeah yeah nope false false I'm not putting that hack drug up my nose it's so 80s aliens are taking over the fucking school weigh it over and out <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I mean I think that's the winner <laughs>